morning, church. If you have your Bibles, can you just take them out, put it in your hand? That does conclude if you've got it on your phone, by the way. So the whole theme for the, the, the two months of January, February is to get you into the Word of God actually, uh, not just a kind of aspirationally. Oh, yes, the Bible is very important, you know, and there's a big difference between your aspirations and your actuals. So I'm, I'm trying to get you into the actual holding your Bible. So take it in your hand physically, and I want to tell you what it's about. If this is new to you, this is going to help you. It is a miracle of literary accomplishment. Some books took a lifetime to write in the Bible. This was composed over 1,600 years. Some are wrote singly. Some are wrote as a collaboration. 40 authors, every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars. Portions of the Bible were written in the wilderness. Some were in a dungeon, some in a palace, some in exile, some in wartime, some in peacetime. The Bible is written in three different uh, continents and languages of hundreds of controversial subjects, if you haven't found them already. Poetry, history, biography, letters, memoirs, prophetic writings. And yet, this astoundingly diverse book speaks with astonishing continuity and is absolutely powerful to your life. You need this book to live, to actually live. These are the words of God in this. This is why I want you to put it in your hand, and I want you to look at it, and I say, God, take these words out of this book, and I pray that you place them in my heart right now, that I might learn what it says and live it out in life. In Jesus' name, amen. This is what we're about. I want to kind of engage you with that. This is an incredible thing um, that God does in the Bible, uh, that he ingrains himself into the text. It's a progressive revelation concept. The more you read the Bible, the more you will discover about God. Incredibly, God has ingrained himself into the people of the Bible. So when we read stories of the Old Testament, you know what you find? You find God. You don't find how God responds to the worst aspects of man and how he leads through. So the great stories of that. So we're teaching you about the timeline of the Bible at the moment. And my goal is, is to teach you this key. I, I want you to be able to draw that line and I want you to be able to understand what that line means because when you read the Bible, I'd like you to understand which section you're reading because this is the chronological timeline of the Bible, starting at creation uh, and then Exodus and the promised land when they come slightly off uh, the path of God because God has got an intentional journey. Have you noticed when God wants to get you somewhere, you take a detour? Who's ever took a detour in life? Well, the Bible is no different. In the Bible, you find yourself too. So uh, this is the Exodus, a little slight detail. And then here we go. I'm going to cover this today, uh, which is the time of the judges. I'm also going to cover the United and Divided Nation of Israel. And here, uh, which is next week, Graham is going to cover the exile. Uh, here, another little kink and bump in the road as they go around, come back onto the line. And here is the key of the Bible, okay? Jesus, okay? The whole Bible is about Jesus. This section here is about the history of where Jesus came from, okay? This is about Jesus, and this is where he has taken us to, the book of Revelation, of where we, if we follow Jesus, are going to end up where we're going. And it details where we're going. It looks good, by the way. It looks really good at the end of the Bible. Is Our mission is here, by the way, just to let you know where you are, because the Bible is not finished yet. You're in the Bible. Did you know that? You are in the Bible. You're about here. Or you could be here. Look. <laughs> 
History is his story. Okay? You read the Bible, you'll understand where you fit in the whole purpose of life. Madonna said this, when I was growing up, I was religious in a passionate way. Jesus Christ was like a movie star, my favorite idol of all. H.G. Wells said, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer, but this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. Napoleon said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Even people who would not describe themselves as followers of Jesus recognize that there is something extraordinary about him. We read the Bible and we sit in the morning and this is how we say, God, would you tell me about my life? I I want something here. And we're constantly on this self-searching. This will tell me about all the problems I need and that's how we go at it, right? You'll get confused if you go at the Bible that way. Let me tell you how to read the Bible in a better way. God, teach me about you. You learn more about God, you will learn more about yourself. You learn, look at yourself more, you will learn less about yourself and get in the right muddle and the pickle. Because there's something about the framework when you see God and you see Jesus. If you pick up your Bible and say, Jesus, what are you teaching me today? How can I find about you? And Jesus is in every page of the Old Testament. He's in every page of the New Testament. And the goal is for us, this series is called Jesus the Key. Unlocking the mysteries of the Bible. When you look at everything you read and ask the question, Jesus, where are you? In that terrible circumstance, that terrible story I've just read, where are you? You will find him. Because it's the same prayer that when you look at your own life and you say, Jesus, where are you in my mess of a life? You will find him if you're looking. Because he's there. You know, and this is a whole series about discovering where Jesus is. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. We know this scripture because we're quoted uh, all this, that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and right. Okay, God breathed. We get that. I want to read the, the passage before that. Because this is the purpose of the scripture. It says, you have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. You've been taught the Bible from childhood that you might know the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus. And it just affirms we're taught about Jesus from childhood because in the scriptures we find Jesus who leads us to salvation. I want to connect all the dots together I can today by looking in the book of Judges. So let's kind of focus in on the timeline. Let's zoom in to see where that goes, this middle section here. Okay, and I'm just going to cover these two points in the middle. But anything in the Bible when you read, it is important that you understand what's gone on before. And you also have some understanding of where what happens afterwards, right? I'm not going to go afterwards here, the exile, because Graham's got that next week. So I'm not going to go into there, because that's what Sarah did last week. But it is really important that we understand the story of that. Now, I want to ask you a question just to get before we get into Judges, because we'll go to Judges and Kings. Put your hand up if you've failed at something. That's great. Okay, put your hands down. I'm just going to do a dip sample. Put your hand up if you've never failed. You've never failed at anything, Mason. Uh, okay, you've got free but how to do better. We all know, isn't it? Who would like to talk about something they've failed at? Anybody who's confident enough? Can you go down the front? Who put their hand up down here? PJ. Uh, you know, just something you've failed at. <laughs> 
your driving test, isn't it? You know, so and how many times did you take your driving test? Altogether four. So passed on the fourth. Um, who's taken more driving tests than four? <laughs> it's not failure, it's learning. It's all about learning as well. Anybody else got a failure in their life that they want to share? Anybody here? Oh, Jack. You dropped, oh, at work is the key thing there, isn't it? Because mum and dad were slightly worrying going, you dropped 10 litres of yoghurt at work, and uh, how long did that take you to clear up? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever noticed when you fail that it takes longer? Interesting factor, isn't it? Some of the mistakes that we made, um, by the way, uh, is that. And, and uh, who's ever failed morally? <laughs> I asked a question that got really awkward at that point, isn't it? Everybody's going, uh, yes, but uh, this is church. We don't be honest in church, do we? Of course you do. Right? If you're failing morally, you're in good company. The book of Judges, if I can tell you, is about the book of failure. All right? This is why it's useful. Because the whole book is about failure. You won't be able to see that picture unless you've got really good eyes. But let me kind of give you this. This is the background of the story of the book of Judges. And there is Joshua. So Joshua is just before the book of Judges. Bear in mind, Joshua comes after Moses. He's the one who goes into the promised land. And, they, they, and God gives them a command. You've got to drive out the Canaanites from the promised land. And you've got to take over the land of Israel because I'm giving it to you. The reality is at the end of Joshua, he did not do that. He didn't complete the task. He actually did. And the reason God asked you to do that, because the Canaanites did some terrible things like sacrificing children. Okay, That's just one of the things. And the whole thing was about corruption of people who were living immoral lives. And if they were to live together, that immorality was going to permeate into the people of God and was going to cause great damage. And so God was saying, push it out. When you go into the land, push away the moral corruption because I want you to live righteously. They did not do that. And the whole book of Judges is where they go into that process. They failed to do it. And so here, just to let you know here, the book starts off with some good judges who did pretty good. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah. Big champion, woman who rose up and things like that. Uh, did that, did okay. And uh, Gideon. He does okay. We like Gideon. We tell this in Sunday school a lot as a great hero. Uh, didn't end too well with Gideon. Kind of made some mistakes here. As, uh, and then it goes into bad Jephthah uh, there, and uh, it goes to worse. And by the way, the book ends up in uh, sexual violence, uh, an incredibly disturbing book. Uh, and, and I just want to kind of draw a picture. If you can see the screen, what happens basically, it starts in not a great place, and then it just cycles downward all the way through. Because there's a cycle, by the way, in chapter 2 of Judges, it talks through what's going to happen in the whole book. So it's a thematic book, so it follows a theme. And I just, if we go on to the next slide, I want to tell you what the theme of the book is. The book of failure is, um, we have times of peace, the people's sin, the sin opens a door up to oppression, they repent and ask God's help, God sends a deliverer, and then peace comes. Okay, that is a cycle. There are seven cycles in Judges. Who's ever failed? Put your hand up. Well, let's just start with failure. Okay, just keep your hand up if you failed before. Who's ever failed again at the same thing? Keep your hand up. It's true, isn't it? 
How many times do you go through the cycles of, yeah, this is one issue in my life. I'm struggling with this, God. I should be better at this, God. You know, and then we go through that, and, and then we kind of, oh, man. And then we wander away from church, you know, and, and it's all God's fault, or it's somebody else's fault, and we get angry. Uh, and then we realize it's not everybody else's fault, and it's not God's fault. And then, oh, it's my fault, God. And then we get that point. It's a good point, by the way. It's a really good point, because if you're at that point right today, that's an honest place. It's far better than the place before, which is everybody else's fault. You take responsibility, you see your mistake, you fall on your knees before God, and you say, God, I need help. I need a deliverer. Let me tell you what a judge is. It's not a guy with a funny wig in the Bible. The actual word translated is liberator. Right? The judge, Moses became the first judge in the people to settle cases, but he was a person who was going to bring freedom to the people that bound them up. So this is when we get to that point of repentance, when we kneel, God, I need help. God, would you liberate me? God, would you free me from the thing I'm struggling with? And you know what God is like. He's a good God. Right? God just doesn't go, God, hear you. I'm dealing with Paul Cranston at the moment. And man, he's got lots of issues. You know? He doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't do it. He goes, he responds to the repentant heart. And let me tell you, repentance opens the doors of the grace of God in an incredible way. And then it goes round again, and then it moves from deliverance as freedom comes. We often find when we come to God, God sets us free. Who's ever been forgiven in life? Forgiveness is freedom. Fantastic. God has set us free. That's the story of the Christian faith, by the way. We are free in Jesus. Yes, and we go round. And what happens when you're in freedom? Peace. And what happens when you get to places of peace? You take your eye off the ball and we drop into sin. So the book of Judges is no different than your cycle of life. And so it's interesting that we understand that um, because we get through. Um, the, 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 the theological term is called the cycle of apostasy. I love it because it's kind of a really old word that we don't use anymore. But it's a cycle where people abandon God. It's a cycle where people abandon faith. It's a cycle when people abandon their belief. And do you know, we can put the front on that we're okay, but there are times we abandon God, belief, and faith, and we just go through the motions on external. But here's the key. I might not know that. I might not be able to pick that up in you, but let me tell you there is one who knows. His name is Jesus, and he wants to lead you through found this picture here uh, online. Um, you can actually buy it, uh, which is really good. I love infographics. And, and so there's 17 judges in the whole of the whole Testament. In the book of Judges, there's 12, and, and it goes for their 12. And I kind of just want to pick the pattern of them, just so I can accelerate the story, just to get through it, if you're not. The years of oppression uh, as each one. And judges are regional, by the way. They're regional areas. God's grace still remains. You just need more liberators. That's all. Happens. Uh, so it comes in here. So I noticed this, that throughout the book of them worse, have you noticed that the years of oppression last longer? Interesting, when it comes to sin, you'll sin worse. Some of the consequences don't impact us so much. But the more we do that sin, it impacts us a bit more. Right? And did you know that cycle can get tighter and tighter and tighter that actually it becomes generational sin in our life. That's where generational sins come from is when our fathers or our grandfathers have the same problem and somehow we're brought up in the same environment and that cycle gets tighter and tighter and it's harder to break free because of the culture in which we're bringing up. So if you've been brought up in a negative family, if your parents are negative or your grandparents are negative, you're going to struggle with negativity until Jesus sets you free. But here's the thing with the gospel, the great news of Jesus, you can break the chain. 
Right? My dad is first generation Christian. And so straight, he's a paper boy, he's in a rock band, he's about to go on gigging in, in Ireland. Of that, he knocks on the door as he delivers papers to an evangelist in the village that he works. He shares the incredible story of Jesus, and he sees something in Jesus that's worth giving up going on tour for. And I was it. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> you understand? Breaks the chain. So it does not matter if you're a first-generation Christian or you're about to become first-generation Christian. You break the chain. Go back up in your life. Everything's happened to you. Whatever bondage, whatever drugs, whatever addiction, whatever pornography, whatever your family life is, let me tell you, the name of Jesus can break that chain and you can restart it today. Right? That is the gospel of great Jesus. Some of you are sat here because your grandparents broke the chain or even further up the field. But here, we get to start the cycle because God is doing that. So oppression increases. Uh, and let me tell you, as your sin um, uh, increases, your rest decreases. Let me tell you about sin, by the way, in your life. is a huge taskmaster. If you're actively sinning, your rest is going to go down. Some of us, I just want time to rest. Let me tell you, living in God, living pure, living righteously before him, your ability to settle in who you are goes up. You know if you've done wrong. You might put the face on, you could put a suit on, you can have a shower, you can look great. But inside, who knows the most? You do. And the reason you know the most, because the devil tells you about it, doesn't he? I saw you, I saw you, I saw you did that, you did that. Who are you? You go to church, you're not good enough. And all of those, tells us all the time that we're never going to make it. But Jesus tells us a different story. So next slide, if that's all right. So the judges. So judges means liberator. Each judge plays the role of a savior, a ruler, a deliverer. And here's the thing about judges, by the way. I just want to get into that. The judges paint the cumulative picture of the three officers of Christ in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. And so if we're looking at the book of Judges, we need to understand that in all of that failure, the simple message of this is when you can't sort yourselves out morally, I'm going to send a judge who's going to help you, liberate you into freedom. Unfortunately, the end of the book ends with when a judge can't sort you out, if that. And so when we see Jesus in there, we see Jesus as the eternal judge of that. So we come to Samuel, becomes the first prophet. Prophets aren't yet around in the Bible. You know, they're about to happen. Graham will cover that next week. We have priests already established through uh, in the Exodus in Mount Sinai when Aaron comes up and the priest, the mediator before God. And here we have the role starting to appear here. We're not quite at a king yet. We're at a judge. You know, supreme over authority over a region. When things are not right, the judges rise up and say, that's not right, I'm going to do something about it. Some of them were priests. Some of them were warriors. And so you've got different roles in the judges, and they rise up to bring freedom. Some of us right now, at this point, if we take a pause, might need freedom, and we might need a liberator. Sin is a hard taskmaster. The Exodus, the Egypt, took about 400 years of oppression. Some of you are sat here and have been under oppression for a long time. So much so, you've said to yourself, I've had this for so long, maybe it's for my life. The message of Jesus as the eternal judge, as the eternal liberator is this, that he has come to bring freedom to you from that oppression. 
You see, we see judgment as a, as a very negative thing. God is a judge. God's wrong. Oh, that's it. You've done wrong. Off you go. But that's penal reform. You see, actually, Christians don't believe in penal reform. We believe in restorative reform. By which we see a person and we see circumstances that placed them in that position and we see them and go, right, you weren't designed to live that way. You weren't designed to be a heroin addict. You weren't designed to be a drug addict. You weren't designed to be a serial uh, um, philanderer. You weren't designed to go around and be abusive. You weren't designed to be violent. You weren't designed anything that you're killing yourself and you're killing your family and you're killing your friends. We see it restorative and say, what God has got for you is to take you from this place and move you into freedom. Judgment keeps you locked up. We've got to shift our thinking that God is about a liberator. Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the liberator of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. I want to declare freedom over this city as Jesus is a liberator. He's not coming to bring the gavel. Bringing freedom. Go on to the next slide if I can. So when we cannot sort ourselves out, God sends a judge. When a judge cannot sort us out, God sends a king. And this is we move on to the judges and kings of that. And this is where we really see another revelation of Jesus. So the kings is found in the book of Samuel and Kings, by the way, just to give you a little bit of Chronicles. There's some Chronicles as well, just to kind of pause on Chronicles. Chronicles is written at the end of the Bible, by the way, if you don't realize that. It's written looking back over the history uh, of the nation of Israel, but it does call, it talks about the events I'm talking about now. So we think it's about the history, but it's actually a reflective book. Samuel and Kings talk about that. Uh, And the key for Samuel, which is the start of that, the key figures of Samuel and Saul and David, who are kind of big figures in the Bible, we see the theme starting of where judges couldn't take the people to freedom, something else was needed. You get transition of leadership from the judges of liberator to the king. Big, big transition as judges were regional, the king was national. If we had a king, like all the other nations, if we had a national ruler, a national leader, that one person under God who would set the civic reform, we would be able to sort out the moral failures of you. Have you noticed that whenever we fail, we just go, let's change the system. If we change the system, our morality, if we vote in this government, we're going to be a higher moral fabric of a nation. Have you noticed that's how we believe? We move on all the time. Because we see the imperfections of one, and we see the bright future of another party that's going to bring us into it. Let me tell you, no government on this planet outside of Jesus Christ is going to be able to eradicate the moral corruption in which we find ourselves. Because if only the Bible the Old Testament teaches is, is that. We struggle in our own moral soup. And so there's a transition of leadership. Samuel becomes the last judge in the line, the first prophet. That role of the prophet, of a messenger sent by God, who speaks for God, who witnesses God, who calls people into conversation, who also tells the future. And uh, it sounds a great role, isn't it? And, uh, but they were often killed for that role. Let me tell you, when you talk the words of God, not everybody likes the words at which you speak. And so we see Saul, the first king, and we see David, the elect king. 
who's going to be that. There's a difference between David and Saul. Transition comes as a key word as well. And that transition is there's something about Saul that's very different to David. Saul looks good on the outside. Saul is tall, head and shoulders. Saul looks like a warrior. Saul looks like a leader. And when the people say, if you give us somebody who looks like a proper king, a proper leader, that person is going to lead us. There's a problem with Saul. He's morally corrupt. He's insecure. He makes mistakes, right? Okay, we all make mistakes. But here's the big difference with Saul is Saul does not acknowledge his mistakes. Some of us are taught, we just make our mistakes. We don't care. We just get up and move on. But how many know the mistakes you make today affect your future? Because there's consequences to every mistake we make. But there's something about David when we see the transition from Saul to David. That actually there's a phrase in, in the calling when Samuel is given the task to anoint the next leader to replace Saul. He goes to the house of Jesse and he sees his sons. He looks at the oldest son. Oh, he's good looking. He's just like PJ. He's the tallest of the lot. He is so good looking. He's the man. And God, I love God, right? Because God is so honest. Have you ever found God to be honest? God will never lie to you. He's the one person in the whole of the universe who will never, ever lie to you or manage your feelings. He would just say, I'm just gonna, if you've got the question, I'm going to tell you, right? Uh, this is the guy. This is the guy. He's going to leave. Look at whoa, Look at him. And, uh, and the God says, no, no. Okay, next one. In walks Matt Strip. <laughs> you know? I don't know who could win it in a fight, but we'll find life later. God says, not him. God says this to Samuel. Don't look at the outside, Samuel. Look at the heart. And here's a phrase, by the way. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. Right? Both statements are true. Just look at Instagram. Instagram's all about the front, the way you look. It's got nothing about what's going on inside. Actually, I don't like Instagram and the concept of what it's doing in undermining the self-esteem of our young people in our generation, that they've got this comparison all the time. Everybody's got a perfect life, and it basically erodes our confidence. And God doesn't say that. I see you. I see you, David. I see you on the sheep, uh, looking after the sheep. I see you on the hills while everybody else is in the party. You're being faithful. I see you when you picked up your guitar and you're playing when nobody else is watching and you just love me. I see you, David. I see this passion inside of you. I see all of this coming out for you. I see that you love me. I, I reckon God also saw the flaws of David too. But actually, the big difference between Saul and David is, while David makes mistakes, David is big enough before God to say, God, I'm a failure. He still has to live out his consequences in the book of Samuel. David rises up as a man after their own heart, and he becomes an image of a king who God likes. He unites the kingdom of Israel. The picture at the top here in that drawing is he unites the kingdom and this is where it is because there is a time coming in the book of Kings when that kingdom splits and it divides and one of the kingdoms, which is the northern kingdom here, it ends. Slightly confusing because the northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom is called Jerusalem and Jerusalem retains and goes on down the line and then becomes Israel as we now know it. But just, that's just confusing. But by the way, just Israel in the concept of the northern kingdom ends because it wanders off from God. There are 20 kings in those two kingdoms that come after David, okay? Between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they split. It's kind of cool for numbers if you like numbers, by the way. In the northern kingdom, this is 
You can go back to that picture. I'm quite happy where I am there. So in the northern kingdom, the 20 kings, guess how many of them followed after God? None. So percentage of 0 out of 20, I'm really good at maths, is 0%. In the southern kingdom, guess how many followed after God? Out of 20. There's another 20. I like the balance of number. Eight. I can't work out the maths there. Times about five, 40%. Just enough for the remnant to survive. And I'll come to you why the southern kingdom of Judah survives in a moment. Because of the key transition in the book of Samuel that leads into the point of kings. You'll find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can put the scripture up. I think it's in there. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a transition where God promises to David that his royal line, a future king, will come, who builds a temple on earth and will set up an eternal kingdom. Let me read it. So David says, I want to build a temple for you. And God says, thanks, David, but no thanks, because I've got other plans. Your son will build the temple, but this is what I want to say to you, David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, which is code for when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come after your body and I will establish a kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You would think he's talking about Solomon. You would think he's going, your son's going to build the house because here's the thing, the house as we discovered in our last series is just merely temporary. There is an eternal house that's going to be built. There is an eternal king that is going to come from your generation. There is a Messiah that's going to come out who's going to build an eternal kingdom that's going to fill the whole earth and his name is yeah you see you understand the Bible right in the center of that when you transition from Samuel to Kings you get the revelation that Jesus is coming the lion of the tribe of Judah is prophesied in Genesis chapter 49 He will become an eminent leader of the tribes. He will be victorious like a lion. The tribe of Judah will become Israel's royal leader. David was from the line of Judah. God speaks always in his people. Even way back in Genesis, there's going to be this eternal Messiah king who's going to come. David, you're going to give birth to this eternal Messiah king. You are chosen. Christ. It's not a surname. It is not a blasphemy statement. It is a title of Jesus, which means anointed king. And the Hebrew used the words Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the eternal anointed king. All the prophecies talk about that. One of the chaplains of Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria had been preaching on the second coming. And afterwards, she had a conversation with the chaplain, the preacher. Queen Victoria exclaimed, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why? asked the chaplain. Does your majesty feel this earnest desire? The queen replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lighted up by a deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. I love that. The Queen of England 
at the time, our queen, with all royalty, the principality, sovereign principality of this nation, understood that there was an eternal king who was the king of the universe. Who understood his importance was so big. And not only that, would take the crown, the significance of all the wealth, all the authority of the nation, and would take it and would place it at the feet of King Jesus. All that I am, I give to you. Why? Because you are the eternal king. Now, I've made a decision in my life to do the same thing. I'm not the Queen of England. I don't have her budget or anything like that. But the principle remains the same. All that I do have, I give to him. I have three children. And everyone, when they were born, we took... These children are a gift from you. We give to you. We call that a dedication service. My career, my aspirations, my dreams, I say, God, it's not what I want. It's what you want. My finances, my talents, all that I am, I give to you. Why? Because I know the King of Kings. Not a harsh ruler who's detached. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is who we worship in this church. Which means Jesus is the most important above everything. So the summary of the book of Judges and Kings. When you can't sort yourself out, God sends you a deliverer. When the deliverer can't sort us out, he sends us a king. When a king can't sort us out, he sends us an eternal king who died for us, who laid down his life so we might know freedom and that now we become sons of the king. You're looking at royalty right now. And so am I.